of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. everyone and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Great to be here today thinking about and discussing matters related to worship, theology, and culture. And today I'm going to be talking about a theological issue and that is specifically God's word and his work. Is it practical motivation or obligatory truth? As a Christian and as a minister, I have found a common struggle with the functionality of the church regarding how to handle biblical truth. In other words, should the church handle God and his work as obligatory truth, irrespective of how it makes us look to an oncoming world or an onlooking world, or should it be treated merely as practical motivation for moral living? Now you may say, well, that's an obvious answer. It's the latter. Um, but In practice, that is not the obvious answer. Questions like this arise in my mind from the disparate approaches we see in local churches, where some churches seemingly treat God's work and his word as mere motivational. Um, Others take his word and his work quite literally, and they approach it, they approach his work as active and effective. In other words, it is life-changing. It is transformational. And there are those that say they believe God's work is transformational, but then in their decisions, it doesn't seem so. So the most common way this plays out in local churches is by writing off those who have perhaps committed seemingly atrocious acts at some point in their life, no matter how far in the past they may be. As unbiblical as that is, We tend to make excuses and in feeble attempts to find their unworthiness or disqualification from service in any way. You've done this in your past. You should not serve in any way. And then we go on to preach and tell people that service is one of the marks of a Christian. It makes no sense. So there certainly are legitimate reasons for concern in some cases, but the church leans toward, seemingly leans toward not allowing people to serve rather than leaning toward grace. And so if we teach that service is one of the primary marks of a believer, how can we justify that stance? Yeah, we say one thing, but then in another, we talk to them privately and say, you cannot serve in this church because of something you have done or because of a situation or a stigma. And then there are those that fall in the middle. And many of these approaches, whatever they may be, are unintentional, and that's perhaps the problem. Uh, After years of observation, personal experience, and thinking about it, I am going to suggest that if we are to be a people of genuine faith, God and his work should doubtlessly be obligatory truth rather than mere practical motivation. So said another uh, another way, The church needs to cease viewing grace and faith through the same grid as the world, but we need to function in a disparate manner. Our faith in God should cause us to live completely contrary lives to the world. So often the opposite is true for the church. The church takes, or at least seems to take a faithless approach 
and views God's word and his work as merely motivational rather than obligatory truth. So while this approach is likely subconscious, in other words, it's unintentional, I suggest I'm going to give four primary ways the church presently takes an approach that is faithless, that views God's word and his work merely as practical motivation. Number one, we treat local churches as businesses, okay? And this is a prominent thing that I see. That is, of course, as a business, that is how the world and governments, whether federal, state, local, whatever, they view the local churches. They view it as a business, certainly a nonprofit in the United States, but they view it as a business. But God's economy is vastly different from the world's economy, which is why the faith of the people of God used in, in, in the Bible sometimes seems senseless on the surface. I mean, Moses, go lead people out of, uh, out of Egypt. You are going to go up against a mighty army. You're going to lead millions out of slavery. I'm going to part the Red Sea. That stuff is senseless. It doesn't make any sense. But the truth is that since God is for us, no person can be against us, Romans 8.31. So no matter how senseless the call of God may seem, obedience is always right and always the most sensible action. So the church is not a business. There's nothing wrong with business. In fact, Christianity needs godly businessmen and women who operate from a Christian worldview. The church, however, does not and should not have a CEO or business model. In Western culture, at least, churches have moved from a people centered around the person and work of Jesus Christ to an organization who builds itself for its own publicity. Even the language we use in the church implies a business mindset. Pastors are admired to the point of idolatry. Churches make decisions solely based on money, and members are considered consumers who shop around until they find the right fit for them. In other words, a church that caters to their wants, which are often mistaken as needs. All of this really equates to a business model, and although the church is not a business and should not function as such, we, we tend to do it. This type of model is not implied or even hinted in the New Testament. By approaching the church as a business, we exemplify faithlessness, selfishness, and a small view of God, which sees his word and his work merely as motivational rather than life, transform, uh, right, life transforming truth. So number one, we, we view the church as a business. Number two, we believe in God's transforming power, but in word only. And what I mean by this is we don't do this in action. We deny his power, his life transforming power in action. As the adage goes, actions speak louder than words. And so we often claim that the, the Bible is true. And so if we do, what is written in the Bible literally happened. And God can even do greater works than what we have recorded in Scripture. Even though this particular profession, this confession that God can do these things is diminishing in the Christian faith. But it's difficult for us to believe that God can change someone who has murdered, who has cheated, 
who has committed sexually deviant, deviant acts, how can God change such a person? Okay, he can part the seas, but he can't change those people? Come on. These are precisely the kind of works that God accomplishes. If we tell the great stories of God throughout history, but we neglect to live lives that point to his present work, we effectively admit our own disbelief in his power. And so on a personal note, I know many people whom God has drastically changed. I know a murderer. I know people who have been convicted of sex offenses, former alcoholics, abusers, and liars. And I have seen it firsthand, God changing these people. Additionally, if, if we are looking for reasons to deny people service in the church and say they don't have a place, that's easy to find. And that's what the world does. So to go against the grain, we need to be a people of grace and of mercy. And it doesn't take long to look. We don't have to look very far to find people who have been in these situations and who God has changed. You know them. So why do we so rapidly write off claims that God has changed someone who has committed an outrageous act? When we do this, we cease to act as the church and instead we act like the world. So what's the difference? Why even call ourselves the church? God's work and his word in those cases become practical motivation, moral lessons, inspiring stories, rather than obligatory truth with transforming power. A third way this plays out for us in the church is we delineate between God's grace before and after salvation as if there is a distant a difference. There surely exists a salvific grace in which God, by the call of the Holy Spirit, saves those people whom he chooses, but his grace continues even after that point. Christians continue to be transformed or sanctified progressively, according to 2 Corinthians 3.18, where you're becoming, uh, being transformed from one degree of glory to the next. But what we often miss as Christians is the fact that progressive sanctification does not necessarily mean a ceasing of magnificent mistakes. Progressive sanctification means that God continually forms the hearts of his people as they struggle, as they toil, and as they are perpetually transformed until the day they're with Christ. And so the assumption that Christians, uh, that, that Christians should not continue to struggle is false. Often the opposite is true. We continue to struggle. Satan continues to attack us. So let's say someone has been genuinely saved at an early age. Okay, five, six years old. I was saved at six. So let's say they're saved as, as at an early age and they struggle with sexual sin, which many adults have struggled with and do struggle with. Could it, is it possible that they could struggle with that later in life? They didn't have those desires or struggles at the age of five or six. I know I didn't. It could be easy to think in line with this thought that Christians should not struggle after salvation and that they shouldn't make mistakes, but that is unbiblical. We still struggle. That's why Paul, the Apostle Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do and I don't do the things I want to do. We're like that. 
there are several people in Scripture who made mistakes after knowing and pursuing God. And some people that come to mind are David, Noah, Moses, even Peter in his blatant denial of Christ. God's grace is sufficient not only prior to salvation, but after because we still need it. Listen, just because we're saved, don't think that you don't need the grace of God. We always need it. If we think that we're, we won't make mistakes just because we're Christians, we've misunderstood our drastic need for God's grace. The church often treats Christians who fall worse than the world does. And it's incredibly telling and sad that we treat our own brothers and sisters with contempt so that we appear to empathize with the world. And for believers, a time of discipline is sometimes necessary. But if the goal of discipline is restoration, we should follow through to that end. God's grace is not suggestive, but is mandatory. And so by acting as if a Christian who falls deserves no grace, we operate effectively from a worldly approach rather than a godly one. The fourth way this plays out in the church is that we are easily swayed by the world's opinion. If the church, the church is too easily swayed by the world, okay? Let's make no bones about it. We largely try to attract the world. Listen, the gospel is not attractive. It's offensive to the world. So stop trying. But the church is too easily swayed by the world. In other words, we care too much what the world thinks of us. If we justify this by saying that we should hold a good reputation to the world around us. But a good reputation does not mean a lack of grace, especially to each other, because that is, in fact, the way the world operates already. And so it shouldn't be the, the way of the church. There's a fine line between holding a reputation of high standard and fully employing decisions based on grace. What does Paul mean when he says that deacons of the gospel should have a good reputation among their peers and as and proven as blameless in 1 Timothy 3.10? It doesn't mean that someone must not have ever made a mistake even after salvation because that is, that's entirely possible. Paul really is inferring that someone's lifestyle who desires to serve is the same outside the walls of the church community as it is in the church community. And so I'm familiar with those who have murdered, abused, and have been addicted to drugs who now live godly lives. And they still periodically make mistakes. Their lives, however, reveal a pattern of sanctification. So if David was a man after God's own heart, how is it justified that he murdered a man and took his wife? Those actions, as horrid as they may be, are not the sum of his life. And since the church does not function based on the world's economy, but on God's, which is often contrary to the world, our decisions shouldn't be based on the same criteria as the world either. So the church is seemingly and sadly, sadly too swayed by the world and what the world thinks of her, when really we should only care what God thinks about us and the glory that he receives. So a question that might arise in all of this, in this discussion is how can we be givers of grace and protect our churches? Simultaneously, how can we do both? 
And we need to realize that in our humanity, we will err. It's guaranteed. But it's always better to err on the side of grace than to adopt a standard set by the world. So if we continue to adopt the world's standards for how we operate, how will we be any different besides preaching a message of grace and repentance that we obviously do not live out practically? Jesus was different. And it caused tension between himself and the religious and political leaders of the day. And so similarly, our basis for practical decisions should be God's grace. The word of God and the work of God are not purely stories of motivation. God's work and his word are obligatory truth to which all Christians should conform. If we read the Bible as moralistic stories, we've missed the point and we prove ourselves really as moralistic therapeutic deists. We become people who We say, if I do these good things that these stories in the Bible teach, my life will turn out okay. God, however, calls us to more. So let us be a people of faith, people who love greatly, people who forgive without hesitation time and time again, and people who are transformed by God's word and his work in our lives because it is obligatory truth, not just practical motivation. Thanks for listening to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones.